Hello, everybody, and welcome to the week 13 edition of Light Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. Well, it's December, which means only one more month of bad football, five games to be exact. The Jets dropped to 0-11 with a 20-3 loss to Miami, and they're home again this week to face the Las Vegas Raiders. Just wince, baby. See what I did there? Well, well, we're kicking off the final month with a rare treat, a Hall of Fame royalty as a guest in our second quarter, and that's Curtis Martin. He'll be joining us. You know, we've done about 40 of these episodes, and I've only had two Hall of Famers, uh, Joe Namath last year and now Curtis Martin. So looking forward to that. I want to start by commenting and shedding some light on this play-calling saga for the Jets. You know, the fact that a head coach... An offensive-minded head coach, mind you, is taking back some play calling. Really should not be a big story, but it is with the Jets because A, they're 0-11, and B, they've fumbled the entire situation. Now, I'm going to break it up into four phases. Phase one, the change. Week seven, Buffalo, Dowell Loggins takes over as the play caller, and Adam Gase confirms it after the game. Pretty big news, considering Gase has always called the plays. Phase two, we'll call this one, don't kill the messenger. Week 11 against the Chargers, Gase has a play sheet, and he's heavily involved in the process. Anybody who's watching it on TV can see that. You know, he's questioned about it after the game, and he says, no, 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 no. He goes, Dowell is still calling the plays. He's simply relaying them to the quarterback unconventional, but plausible. You know, Kansas City uses a similar system with Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy. Okay, on to phase three. We'll call this the change of direction. This past Sunday, before the game, Chris Mortensen of ESPN reports, citing a player's source, that Gase will be back to being the primary play caller. So now everybody in the plus press box We're watching the sideline throughout the game, and Gase has one of those big Denny's menu-type play sheets. And Loggins, well, he has a small piece of folded paper, and he's off to the side, and it sure seems like Adam Gase is calling the plays. But when I question him after the game, he insists that Loggins is still doing it. Now, I got a little testy on my follow-up question, and, and believe me, that is not usually my style, but... You know, I felt like he was really insulting the intelligence of the media people. So eventually, under further questioning, he admits that he's done situational play calling, meaning third down and two minute offense type stuff. Okay, now we're on to phase four, the fallout. So after changing his tune a little bit on Sunday, we're on to Monday. And Monday, Gaze concedes that the play calling is, quote, a collaborative effort, end quote, between him and Loggins, which is what he sort of said a couple of weeks ago, and we would have avoided all this. So he also tries to explain why he hasn't been transparent. He says he doesn't want to put his team at a, quote, competitive disadvantage, end quote. Now, let's pause here for for a little laugh. The Jets are 0-11, and the offense is historically bad, so you could argue that it's a little late for being worried about competitive disadvantage. Actually, there is some credence to that, what he's saying, because opposing coaches can get a feel for a team's tendencies if they know which coach is calling what plays. Now, don't laugh. It's true. 
Remember that great sound from the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, Patriots and, and Rams? Uh, when Belichick was on the sideline, he was ranting, where's McVay? Where's McVay? Well, there was a priv- pivotal decision coming up in the game, and he wanted to get an eyeball on McVay because he feels that he can get a feel for what's coming based on the body language of the coach. You know, the coach can tip the play. So this sort of stuff happens. Opposing coaches look at play callers and they know what their specific tendencies are. So that's what Gase meant. But it came out weird because, you know, it just it just makes the Jets look bad. You know, it, it's the classic, you know, mountain out of a molehill. It also hurts his credibility in the locker room because I know for an absolute fact that players believe He's calling the plays. You know, they know that, and yet they watch him do his dance in the Zoom calls with the media, and, you know, they they probably have to shake their head. So it's not a good look for the coach or for anyone. In the big picture, like I said, it's not going to impact Gase's fate because I think we all know he's going to get fired at the end of the season. But it's just one more bad optic for an organization that has just had too many bad optics and just can't seem to get out of its own way. Back with the second quarter right after this. And now it's my pleasure, really our privilege, to welcome in one of the great players in Jets history, a pro football Hall of Famer, sixth on the all-time rushing list, None other other than the great Curtis Martin. Curtis, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, no problem, Rich. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Uh, it's been a while since we've talked. How, how is Curtis Martin dealing with this uh, COVID world that we're now living in? Well, I mean, I guess I'm making the most of it. Um, uh, you know, you take the, the you know the actual virus away. You know, I think that I've been more productive because I'm able to be in more cities uh, at the same time or (laughs) in less time than I was previously. You know, now I do everything by Zoom. Yeah, don't we all? We've we've turned it. Everything is we live in a Zoom world right now. Uh, Of course, the NFL is is like doing a lot of virtual meetings and so forth. How do you think if you were a player and, you know, you didn't have team meetings face to face, you had to do uh, virtual meetings. How do you think you would have reacted as a player? Um, I mean, that's, that's your job, you know, whatever the job requires, you know, that's what you get paid to do. So you kind of make that adjustment and, you know, football players, especially, we have to deal with the weather. We have to deal with injury. We have to deal with all different types of circumstances. So we're used to adjusting. Well, I want to ask you about the jets. Um, Of course, you know, I I know you're still a, a jet fan. You live in the area. And they're going something, going through something that you've never experienced. I, I looked it up. You know, you only had three losing seasons in your career, your rookie year with New England, and then in 03 and 05 with the Jets, really when they lost their quarterback in both those years. But now the Jets are 0-11. You've never experienced something like that. What are your thoughts on the team, and can you imagine what the players are going through right now? Well, I mean, personally, I would be miserable at 0-11. You know, um, it wouldn't stop me from trying even harder. I would probably be trying even harder because I think it's just a sense of pride just to at least win a game. Um, And so, uh, you know, nothing's really good in the locker room or at the facility when you're losing, especially losing the way the Jets are. What was the toughest year you went through, Kurt? Like just uh, was there a, a most frustrating season in Curtis Martin's career? 
I think my most frustrating season was probably the year that Vinny got hurt in that first game of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm the type who I, I don't get but so frustrated because at the end of the day, I look at things like it is what it is and you just have to deal with it. Um, and But the reason that was frustrating is because – I really thought that we were going to go to the Super Bowl. I think that that was the best team that I had ever played on, and I was looking forward to seeing the results of that season. That was, of course, 1999, and you guys were coming off an AFC championship game appearance. And so, yeah, there was every reason to think that that was going to be a Super Bowl year. I mean, you and uh, Keyshawn and Wayne Corbett and Vinny, and Kevin Mawai on on offense, that was a heck of that that team was stacked. Yeah, that was one of the best teams from a talent standpoint that I've ever been a part of. We had a good what defense, was, also. Yeah, I mean, some great defensive players, and uh, I I think we've talked about this before, but that '98 season was such a great year for the Jets, but it ended in such disappointing fashion in that championship game where you guys were actually leading ten nothing. I think you once mentioned to me that it was the most heartbreaking or, or frustrating loss of, or the toughest loss of your career. Is, is that accurate? That championship game? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, because, you know, I, 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 it's okay to lose a game because that's just the nature of the NFL. You're going to lose sometimes, but it's extra frustrating when you feel like you beat yourself and I, I feel like that game, we lost that game ourselves because we turned the ball over maybe, I think, three times in the third quarter and fourth quarter, right. um, which right. is very hard to beat any team, less on, you know, a team who became a Super Bowl champ that year. So I, want, I just want to fast forward it back into the present and with the current Jets. And I know we talked a couple of months ago, you were really high on Le'Veon Bell. You thought he would have a really good career with the Jets. Are you surprised that it didn't work out with Le'Veon and the Jets? I'm not necessarily surprised. Um, you know, somewhat disappointed that it didn't, but not surprised. Uh, because, you know, I've learned to expect anything. Um, you know, I never thought that I would leave the New England Patriots, you know, and that happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you, you, you never really know what to expect. Um, you know, uh, but I, I didn't expect for Le'Veon's career with the Jets to end the way that it did. Yeah, I mean, you never expect a guy to get cut in the middle of the season, you know, who got such a big contract. And, um, yeah, it was really surprising. I mean, why did it? Why was it so disappointing for you? Just because you had high hopes coming in? Well, you know, I actually think from a talent standpoint, Le'Veon is one of the most talented guys in the league. And um, like I say, it just didn't work out here in New York for him. Um, and I don't know, you know, who's to blame for that, but it just didn't work out at the end of the day. So it was just a, you know, a disappointing, uh, I guess, signing for the New York Jets and probably disappointing on Le'Veon's behalf also. So, you know, now the Jets are going to be going through a transition. I mean, we all expect them to have a new coaching staff, you know, for next season. And there's a lot of fans that are very skeptical about the Johnson family and whether they could, you know, lead this team in, into another phase. You've known Woody and Christopher for 20 years, Kurt, you know, because when you got to the Jets, actually you predated them by a little bit, but then Woody came about two years after you signed with the Jets. So you know them very well. 
what could you say to the fans about you know uh, the Johnsons and how they lead and and what is your confidence level in them being able to get this figured out I'm confident that they'll get it figured out I mean they got it figured out when I was there and you know you go through these ebbs and flows sometimes and you know, uh, there's no doubt that they'll get it figured out. It's just about how long will it take? You know, is, is this year going to set the team back, you know, so much that it's going to take a few years just to get on track, not even necessarily to try to compete for a, a AFC championship or anything like that. What, what the question that I think most fans are going to have in their minds um, is, you know, how long is it going to take so that the, Jets are playing very respectable football. Like Owen, what Owen, what ten or eleven? Eleven. That's, you know, I don't think that's respectable right now, and I think the fans are just frustrated. And I understand it. I mean, rightfully so. If I was playing on the team and it, we were zero and eleven, I, I would want the fans to boo me. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Frank Gore said the other day about about a week ago, he said, he goes, I can't go out like this. You know, he goes, I can't go out as on an 0-16 season. I mean, so you imagine how much that's eating away at him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have some good people with a good mentality on that team. And, you know, to go 0-16, I mean, to me, that just speaks volumes about, how the team, because it's not that they don't necessarily have talent. Um, to go 0-16, there's something, there's a bigger problem. Yeah, the question is what? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm not necessarily close enough mm-hmm. uh, to understand exactly what it is. And, you know, I'm very cautious about just, you know, being a Monday quarterback and sitting back from my couch and saying, this is what's wrong. Uh, I'm a big believer because when I was playing, there were a lot of times where people would say this is wrong or that was wrong or I was wrong or Vinny was wrong or the coach was wrong, but more times than not, they were wrong. And, And so it would be interesting to be close enough to the team to understand what's actually going on. You know, and I think personally, the last time the Jets were in this bad of shape, a guy named Bill Parcells came in and turned everything around. So I think they need – too bad Bill wasn't a few years younger because I think he'd be the perfect guy for the job. You know, uh, it, it, I think – I don't know. Do you agree with me or disagree? They need a Parcells type of guy, like that kind of presence, you know, with a, with a championship resume to try, to try to get this thing headed in the right direction. Yeah, and, and see, Parcells, the, the, the good thing about Parcells is that he had been around long enough to understand what the infrastructure needed to be. You know, he knew how to build a good foundation. I was actually doing an interview two days ago, and we were talking about how the media, I believe you were a part of it also, Rich, <laughs> which I don't blame you, uh, <laughs> was okay. giving him a you were giving everyone was giving him and myself a lot of flack for him bringing me here from New England, mm-hmm. you know, and, and rightfully so. I was coming off an injury, you know, a, a injured season, um, and remember they had Adrian Morrell here, so and Adrian's a heck of a back. So I believe that on their charts, running back was like their eighth need, and they had several other needs. Uh, beforehand. Uh, but Parcells, my point is that Parcells, 
he understands how to put a team together from a chemistry standpoint. You know, I'll never forget being in that press conference and someone said, Bill, why would you spend all this money to get Curtis here and give up a first and third round pick when you have seven other needs on your chart board that is more important than a running back? And I'll never forget Bill saying this. And to me, it was one of the greatest compliments that I've ever gotten as far as my career. He said, well, if you've been doing this as long as I have, what you come to understand is that there's certain things that are like the the, the, the necessary ingredient uh, for what you're cooking. And I remember he said, the one thing that you guys can't see that I can see is that Curtis Martin won't only be the best player on our team, but he'll be the best best person on our team. And he'll make everybody else in this locker room that much better. And um, like I said, a huge compliment to me, uh, but he knew how to do that. He knew those right pieces of the puzzle that would make the puzzle complete, for lack of better words. Well, your memory is and right on, what, Curtis, as usual, because I, I was skeptical of that move when it first came out because I'm like, why would you give up that much in salary and draft picks for a running back when you already have a good running back? So I was, I, uh, you're right. And I was totally wrong. I admit, I admit that. And Bill tells me that every time I call him. He doesn't let me forget about that either. <laughs> but, you know, what you know, he, but, but the thing is, but the thing is, is, I'll be honest with you, Rich. When they told me that New uh, New York was going to be the one who, you know, paid me and gave up draft picks, because at that time, I don't think anyone had done that, you know, giving up a first and third round. Um, and so I was actually surprised because I thought so much of Adrian Morrell. But because of Bill's foresight and what he knew, like, and that's what I think, is really important is understanding those right pieces and what the right recipe is for winning. And, and Bill, I believe is as good as anyone at that. Does he still call you a boy wonder? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to this day, you know, uh, every, every time I call him I, and I still call him coach, I'll say coach, he'll say, Hey, boy wonder, how you doing? That's great. You guys have a great relationship. Do you guys talk often? Yeah. We talk pretty often or we text. Um, I just spoke to him two or three days ago. That's great. Um, I, I just got to ask a what if question. I mean, you know, you had a fabulous career with the Jets, obviously, because, you know, you're in, in Canton and that's that's the best. But do you ever wonder or regret if that you left the Patriots because you were uh, you would have been part of the dynasty because, you know, the Belichick dynasty started about three years after you left New England. So I'm wondering if you ever wonder geez, if I had only stayed in New England, I could have been part of all those Super Bowls. No, you know, I, I tell you, um, that doesn't, you know, that's not something that I have spent any, you know, mental time on. Uh, at, at the end of the day, I just feel like things happened the way they were supposed to. If you could ask me if I could, if I would go back and play for New England and win all those Super Bowls, or had the career that I had here in New York, I would choose this 100% of the time, you know, uh, hands down. Uh, I, I, I not only was New York a good team for me to be a part of, but 
I, I just, I've learned to love New York living here. Like, I think I'll live here for the rest of my life. Like, I love being in New York. And, you know, this, it, it opened up a whole new world to me that I wasn't exposed to. And I'm, I, w- I wouldn't give this up for however many Super Bowls. Wow. Well, I'm curious, would you ever think, and we, we've talked a little bit about this over the years, you ever think of getting back into football as, as maybe a football executive or, or like a John Elway type, you know, like a former player who's in charge of, of personnel? Any thoughts to ever getting back that way? I, right now, Rich, the only capacity I could see myself being involved in the NFL is, you know, from an owner standpoint, some type of ownership state uh, in an NFL team and being able to contribute from that position. Well, I know that's been a dream of of yours for a while. Yeah. 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 So that, that's the only capacity I really see myself involved with a team. Didn't that, didn't you, I mean, you've had some opportunities, right? Or some, there've been some, flirtations right with various opportunities over the year to get into an ownership group yeah i've had some great opportunities and i i actually you know probably still have opportunities what has happened is that i i've i've i remember when i was playing um my rookie year in new england rich i was when bill finally let me get in the game i was trying so hard that you know i would run full speed every time I got the ball right to the hole and I wasn't being patient enough. And I remember Bill told me, he said, son, you got to learn to let the game just come to you. And it's kind of, that's the approach that I've taken towards ownership. There's been some opportunities, but in hindsight, I can see that they weren't the right opportunities. And so now I've just sat back. I continue doing what I'm doing and I'm just kind of letting the game come to me and I'll know when the right time is. It's amazing how even after all these years of playing for Parcells, you still find wisdom in some of the things he said about football matters. It's almost like you could apply it to different things in your life. You know what's good about Parcells is that he was able to translate football for me in the way that it made sense for life. And so that's why I see football as like the ultimate game of life because he, and I believe that's what made him such a good coach is that there wasn't a huge separation from the way he was on the field from the way he was off the field. You know, his commitments were the same. His level of commitments were the same. His level of aggression was the same. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that I learned from Parcells. And he just told me, he said, son, he said, if you give your all to this game and try your best at this game, he said, you should wait and see what this game will give back to you. And I tell you, more so than, you know, all the accolades and contracts and things that the game has given me, what it has given me most is a certain type of wisdom that I've been able to apply to life. It's taught me how to deal with pain. It's taught me how to control my emotions, control myself. It's taught me about commitment. It's taught me about discipline. There's so many things that this game taught me. You know, a lot of people always ask me if I had a son, would I allow allow him to play football? And my answer is always 100% yes. You know, I think it's the best game on earth. And uh, and, uh, I, I really appreciate what it can instill in someone who's committed to it. It's amazing to hear you talk that way, Kurt, because it, it, it's obvious how important the game is to you. And yet, when you started out as, as a kid, 
in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I mean, football wasn't like, I don't think you loved it then, if I'm correct. I think your mom kind of suggested that you get involved in football just to, you know, stay off the street and, and, you know, do something productive with your life because it wasn't like you loved it from the first day, right? I never loved it. I didn't love football all the way through the day that I retired. I, I, on a scale of one to 10, I liked football probably around a six, you know, but what was, what was better than my love for the game was my love and appreciation for what I saw the game could help me do not only with my life, but in so many other people's lives. That's what drove me every day. It was almost as though I played the game for a purpose that was bigger than the game. And so that's what drove me. That's the only reason why I believe I made it into the Hall of Fame, because every single day that I was on that field, every yard I gained, every touchdown I scored, I just felt like it opened up more doors for me to be more productive in life and in other people's lives and impact their lives in a positive way. So, you know, football has given me so much more than the game itself. And and my appreciation was far beyond my love for the game. And Kurt, just obviously you're, you're a busy man these days. Um, what can, what can you tell the listeners about, you know, what, what type of businesses you're doing? And it sounds like you're doing, a, we're doing a lot of traveling until COVID stopped everything, but like what, you know, how do you uh, describe what your life is like now? My life is just like busier than when I was playing football. Um, uh, but it's the type of busy that I want to be involved in. It's um, uh, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I'm very entrepreneurial. I, uh, I'm involved in all different types of sectors. I have a great team around me that I've formed over the years. I have great relationships and now I have the resources to be able to pursue so many different things from a philanthropic as well as from a business perspective. And, um, I, you know, Rich right now, um, I, I literally don't know if God just said to me, Kurt, what do you want? I don't know that I would even know what to ask for because I feel perfectly content with where I am and where I'm going. Mm. And I know you're a dad, you're, you're a family man now on Long Island. So maybe you got, uh, I know you, your daughters, uh, any promising athletes there on the way up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are so athletic. Um, it's funny, the other day, my wife's father was over at our house, and my kids, they're, you know, like, my one daughter, you'll see her just flipping around a house like an acrobat, like, and she'll probably do at least 100 flips a day. She just does it. And um, her grandfather looked at her, and he said, yeah, these, these, both of these kids are just so athletic. And it's like he wasn't even thinking. He said, they're just like their grandpappy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and my wife said, so it probably has nothing to do with the fact that their father is a professional athlete, huh? Right. And no, we all all right. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah they're just a, like their grandpappy. Uh, I'm sure you got a nice smile out of that. <laughs> that's yeah, a, yeah, we that's, can laugh. That's a great story. Well, Kurt, I can't thank you enough. I want the fans to know I, I've literally covered hundreds and hundreds of Jets players over the last 30 years. And when I say that there's only one guy at the top of the list in terms of being such a classy professional in, in dealing with the media, you are at the top of the list without a doubt. 
and um, I could tell stories for days. I don't want to get carried away, but I, I always appreciated you. And you're the one guy, even after a hard game or a loss, you always stood there in front of the media. You never ducked the media and you, you know, you took accountability and believe me, we, we always appreciated that. Well, man, you know, Rich, it's because number one, I, you know, I look at you guys as a part of the game, you know, um, what you guys do is very important in my eyes. And, um, I, I think that, you guys need to be treated with the respect that's due to you. Um, I, I even remember, Rich, I don't know if you remember, I can't remember the exact year, but it was when I was coming off that really hard year where I had those two high ankle sprains. Mm-hmm. And I got off to a slow start that following year. And I was getting killed in the media, you know, for the first time really uh, it, it, during my stint with the Jets. And I'll never forget being in front of my locker room. I mean, being in front of my locker. And I don't think it was you. It might have been Dan who asked me the question. He said, Curtis, how are you dealing with all this negative press? Like, you know, all these years, you've never really gotten any negative press. Um, But how are you dealing with it? And I remember telling him, I said, whoever it was, uh, Mm -hmm. say it was Dan. I said, Dan, you know what? Look, I think I would have to be a fool for you guys to write all this good stuff about me for all these years. And then for me to be upset because this one year, and it's just the beginning of the year, that you guys are writing negative stuff about me. And I said, if I'm being honest, I'm not performing as well as I think I can. And so if I were you guys, I would probably be writing the same thing about me. And I'll never forget saying, the only thing I ask of you guys no, you keep writing exactly what you're writing because I think it's earned. I, I've earned that negative press. Mm-hmm. I said, but I guarantee you I'm going to turn this around, and I just want you guys to keep doing your job. And, and, and you know, so even if it was negative press, I, I, in my eyes, it wasn't for no reason because when I was doing good, you guys wrote good things. And then when I turned that season around and started doing better, you guys wrote better things. I think you guys do your job. I appreciate what you guys do. And Rich, you know, you and I have always had a great relationship and I appreciate the relationship that I have with you. And I remember that day, Kurt, and you were basically saying exactly what you said, you know, bring it on. And I remember walking away thinking, this guy is unbelievable. I mean, he just basically admitted he's not playing well and we should criticize him. And it's like, this is the first time I've ever encountered an athlete who did that. And I think it was the next year you won the rushing title at the age of 31. And I think to this day, that is the oldest running back has ever won a rushing title. And I have never seen a greater individual performance over the course of a season than 2004. I mean, that was phenomenal. I mean, (laughs) that was like every week you were just cranking out the yards and it, it was something to behold. Well, thank you. And you remember when I, when I said that, when I said, look, yeah, keep writing it. But when I turn this around, just keep doing your job, you know, because I knew that I was going to turn it around. You know what I mean? Like I'm, you know, I'm a pretty reserved guy, but inside, you know, I'm, I'm just like a lion. I, I, I'm, I, I, I know how to win. I, I believe that if I, if I'm focused and just keep pushing and, keep being consistent that eventually I'm going to win. And, and, um, 
and you guys kept doing your job. And like I said, you guys started writing better stuff when I did better. And like I said, I've always appreciated the media. Well, folks, he's a Hall of Fame player and he's a Hall of Fame person. Curtis Martin, thank you. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me, Rich. Good to catch up with you. Same here, Kurt. And this is the third quarter, and I've picked out a bunch of questions that cover everything from the draft to Sam Darnold to Rich Kotite. Yes, Rich Kotite. Man, thanks for the questions. And just as I did last week, I'll, I'll get to the many of the ones I couldn't get to here on Twitter later in the week. But we're starting it off with at Knicks, Jets, etc. Be honest. You're going to miss these Gase press conferences, aren't you? Well, uh, yeah, kind of. They're better than Todd Bowles' press conferences were. Certainly more entertaining. And, you know, the weird thing about Adam's press conferences, and it looks like we have these testy exchanges, but we actually have a very professional relationship. Um, it's not always what you seem, although last week it got a little testy, but I think that's just uh, part of the business. Next from at Ben underscore stand two. If the Jets and Jaguars both finish at one and 15, who gets the first pick? Well, of course, and I'm sure you guys know this, it's based on strength of schedule. It has nothing to do with head-to-head competition or anything like that. It's strength of schedule. The team that plays the weaker schedule gets the higher pick, gets the tiebreaker, because the theory being that they were lousy against weaker teams, so they get the higher pick. So in this case, the Jets probably would not get it. Now, the numbers are always changing based on the weekly results, but right now, the Jets have played the fifth hardest schedule in the league. According to our ESPN analytics team, the Jaguars have played the 17th harder. So 5 to 17, that's a pretty big gap, and I don't think the Jets would be able to overcome that. So if it's both 1 and 15, I think the Jets would get the second pick, which is pretty big. Pretty big difference between the first pick is what I meant. Uh, At sports underscore FI3ND, he wonders, and this is a valid question, he wonders about having no crowd at the stadium for home games due to COVID-19 and if that's had an effect on why Adam Gase has not been fired. And if you check out my story on ESPN.com this week, I touch on this very issue. Uh, Yes, I do think it's a factor. Uh, You know, when a stadium is half empty and the fans that show up, the paying customers, are angry and they're booing and they're chanting for the coach's head during the game. That's a really, really ugly atmosphere. And I do think that has an impact on owners. And we haven't had that this year. It's a totally weird dynamic now, unprecedented. And I do think it's a reason why Gase still is the head coach. At Steve Simon has a good question. Please compare Gase to Kotite with stats. Whose stench is worse? Better yet, has there ever been a coach, a worse head coach over a two-year run? Uh, I I like this question. I, I did a lot of research. Well, actually, our ESPN stats people did a lot of research for me, and they're great. And uh, here's a couple of nuggets you might enjoy, Steve. Since 2000, Gase has the 14th worst winning percentage for a head coach that is based on a 25-game minimum. In fact, all these stats I'm going to read to you are based on a 25-game minimum. Uh, So he's 14th worst over the last 20 years. Over the last 10 years, he has the sixth worst winning percentage. I think the most telling stat is this. Kind of mind-boggling. Since 2000, Gase has the fourth worst point differential of any coach with one team. 
So that's pretty staggering right there. You asked about the Kotite comparison. Of course, we know Rich Kotite in 95, 96, won four and 28. So Adam has already surpassed that. He's seven and 20. And I think average margin of defeat, I looked it up. Kotite's average margin margin of defeat was 10.1 points. Gase is at 9.4. So as bad as it seems now, folks, and it's bad. It was actually worse under Kotite in terms of results and the lopsidedness of the games. At DVD Row, do you have a stat on which NFL team over the last 10 years has targeted, targeted the tight end the least? I'm betting it's the Jets. Well, David, uh, you'd lose that bet. Close, close, but not quite. I looked it up since 2010. The Jets are actually 30th. In tight end targets, Buffalo and Arizona have fewer. And the Jets are 31st in catches. They're only five ahead of Arizona. So we still have time there. You still have time to win that bet. The way things are going, the Jets could end up in 32nd after after the next five games. At Luigi Dimeo, uh, is there any division between the coaches and the GM? It seems like Joe Douglas was releasing players to force coaches to play younger players. Uh, Luigi, it, it, it didn't seem like it. He was doing that. He was releasing players that would force the coaches to play younger guys. Now, is there a division between the GM and the coaches? Not that I know of. Uh, did the coaches appreciate, especially Greg Williams, losing guys like Avery Williamson and Pierre Desir? I don't know, maybe a little. I mean, Desir was already in his doghouse anyway, so I'm not sure that was a huge deal. Uh, the one thing I'd like to point out, though, the uh, the, the notion that Gase and, and Douglas have been buddies for years, and it's the reason why Douglas took this job, that's that's a misconception. I, I think Joe Douglas had some hesitancy from people I talked to about taking this job because of Adam Gase. And Adam, and I've said this before, actually drove down to South Jersey near the Philly area, knocked on Joe Douglas's door and basically begged him to take the job. And, and, it, and he did after the Jets sweetened their offer to six years and three million plus a year. So the notion that Gase and, and Douglas are buddy-buddy uh, is a little, is not accurate. Um, is there a division between them? No, I don't get that sense. Next one from at Danny R. Coster. Will Darnold have a Tan- Tannehill-like rebirth after leaving the Gase offense? You know, it's funny you mention this, Danny. You know, I have talked to people in the league and personnel circles who use that exact comparison for Sam Darnold. Um, you know, once he moves on, and I do believe he'll be moving on to another team next year, they think he has the ability to do that. He's young enough. He's only 23 right now. And, uh, you know, as long as he stays healthy and, and shows that these injuries are not chronic, I think he has a really good chance. And there's some people around the league who believes that if Kyle Shanahan gets a hold of him in San Francisco, which I do think is a possibility, they think he would absolutely flourish in that offense. So I do think Sam has some upside that hasn't been utilized here. And I do think he can have a Tannehill-like resurgence in another offense back after this. And so the Raiders are coming to town this weekend, and that means John Gruden. Ah, yes, Chucky coming to town. And I want to tell you a little John Gruden story. So as you all know, he was the ESPN's color analyst on Monday Night Football for many years. Did a fabulous job. Loved listening to him. 
And as part of that job, every year he used to do a conference call with writers across the country before the draft. So you always wanted to listen in to get his thoughts on the draft prospects and teams and what they should do, and especially quarterback prospects. So in 2014, I was on the conference call and I asked a Jet-related question. And I, if memory serves, I said something like this. I said, John, if Johnny Manziel happens to slip to 18 to the Jets, what would you do? At the time, the Jets had Geno Smith, which means they basically had nothing at quarterback. So it was kind of a valid question, and I'll never forget what he said. And I'm not a good, this is not a Frank Caliendo impersonation, but it went something like this. His answer was, if Johnny Manziel is there at 18, I'll give you my cell number and take you out to a steak dinner. Well, as it turned out, Johnny Manziel was there at 18. The Jets, of course, did not take him, but he ended up slipping to 22 where the Cleveland Browns took him, something they probably regretted almost immediately. And so I'm still waiting for that steak dinner, John. Never got it. We talked a little bit about it through intermediaries the following year on a Monday Night Football telecast meeting in Jersey. Never happened. So, you know, you're in town this weekend. If you want, I'll send you my address. You can send something uh, over Uber Eats. Obviously, we can't meet for in a restaurant because of COVID. But I'd be glad to accept a delivery of a steak dinner of my choice. I've been waiting all this time. I, you know, hopefully it'll happen. And so that's what I think of with the Raiders and John Gruden coming to town. Chucky owes me. Anyway, I want to thank our special guest this week, Curtis Martin, the great Hall of Famer, for stopping by. Curtis does not do a lot of interviews, and so I was really, really appreciative of his time. Also want to thank our producer, Jeff Scopin, and I want to thank you for listening. Always appreciate it week after week. Please send us suggestions, rate and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or Google Play. And of course, on any of the ESPN platforms, try to enjoy the game this week, whether that means you hope they win or lose. I hope you get what you want. We'll talk about it next week on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.